Okay, we'll go ahead and get going here. I'm going to leave those flippy doors open, though, for the morning. We've had an increase of uh, nefarious types that have been coming through here. And uh, we don't even have Casey this morning. So, Bob, you're our official bouncer on the back row. That's as far as that goes. All right, you can turn to Matthew 13. There are parallel texts, including Mark 4 and Luke 8. However, the dominant passage is Matthew 13, and that's where we will spend the bulk of our time. We will only bring in the Mark and Luke parallels uh, occasionally when they uh, add to details or information that we have in Matthew. But to be honest, it, Matthew is so thorough and so complete that you don't particularly need to bring in Mark or Luke to uh, to explain these parables. And that's what we want to look at this morning. This is episode 27 of the Galilean Ministry, Famous Parables of the Kingdom. And it is, in fact, along with the Sermon on the Mount, the Mount Olivet Discourse, uh, this is the most significant passage of dialogue to be found anywhere in the life of Christ. And uh, when you think of major messages, those are the three that you think of. Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7, Parables of the Kingdom in Matthew 13, and then the Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, those areas, those three there are the significant discourses, three out of the five significant discourses in the Gospel of Matthew. And along with the feeding of the 5,000, uh, along with uh, the betrayal in Gethsemane uh, and the cross itself, uh, this is really one of the big items that we're going to be covering over the span of this series and one that I've been looking forward to for some time. You'll note, uh, maybe if you compare these notes to the Through the Bible Notebook, that these notes are um, found in the Through the Bible Notebook. That when we were in Matthew 13, it was week 43 of our Through the Bible series, um, <laughs> I put so much detail in those notes that we couldn't cover it in class. That uh, the, the pace was so rapid in uh, the Through the Bible series that you just couldn't cover any one chapter with the detail that you wanted to and it broke my heart at the time because the notes were pretty thorough in the notebook and just you couldn't get there in the in the bible class itself and so i knew this uh event was coming up and and i was delighted to go clip the uh the, the principles out of the through the bible notes and put them in here and uh, i look forward to teaching it over the next few sessions here because uh this is where i think that even those that don't have a dispensational approach are off track and wrong but unfortunately those with a dispensational approach sometimes fail to live up to their own principles and because of that even the dispensational approach by and large struggles with this because of the overlap between uh, old testament new testament the overlap between israel and uh, church and some of the things that are perceived difficulties here so i'm excited to think that we're going to handle this today uh, dispensationally and yet properly, not uh, uh, not being the, the schizophrenics that unfortunately a lot of good men have to become when they uh, they try to tell you that Matthew 13 applies to the church, but not really, only kind of, sort of, and really just uh, Israel, but not really, only kind of, sort of, and uh, they, they have trouble with it. So we'll have some fun here today. That confuse everybody? It's because we haven't prayed yet. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I rejoice over the opportunity we have this morning to assemble together. We do ask for your hand of protection upon us this morning, Father. Uh, we, uh, we've we grown accustomed lately to having uh, some of the men around, and that's uh, been a blessing. But Father, as we've noticed an increase on the uh, conflict and folks wandering through here, we commit to you now our, our assembly together, not only for guiding us in the truth, but protecting us while you're at it. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, parables of the kingdom. Prayer is such an amazing thing. All right, parables of the kingdom. Matthew 13, that day, what day? 
Well, back up to chapter 12 and you realize that this event comes on the heels of the incident where he's teaching Bible class and his mother and his brother show up and they get word to him and he uses that opportunity. What we've been studying for the last couple of weeks, he uses that opportunity to teach about a spiritual family in addition to an earthly family. And so it's on that day, Jesus went out of the house and uh, we assume that he talked to his mom at least, <laughs> found out what she wanted and dealt with that at the end of chapter 12. We don't know, we don't need to know. But then there was an even greater Bible class to teach, one that wasn't going to be confined to being indoors, uh, an outdoor message with large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And this launches us into a series of messages. I'm going to outline them for you here this morning, and we'll spend some time on them. The first one is the longest, and it sets the table for everything else. If you understand the principles in the first one, then the, the others, uh, not only do they get shorter and shorter as they're presented, one of them is just a single verse, but they don't have to be as verbose and drawn out because you've got the, you've got the hang of it in, uh, in the process of these seven parables. All right. Point one, then, we're going to get a total of eight things out of this chapter, the first of which, although not the first parable recorded, this passage is the first lengthy discourse to utilize parabolic teaching. Although not the first parable recorded. We had one way back in Galilean ministry, episode 11, where the disciples were defended via parable. That was back in Matthew chapter 9. Verses 14 through 17. So we have encountered a parable in the past. Very, very briefly there in Matthew 9. And it's escaping me here at the moment. Uh, they say, um, how come the Pharisees wonder, well, how come your disciples don't fast? And he says, well, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? See, and that's a metaphor, but it's a parable that's describing the, the reasons why the, uh, the present time of the disciples with the Savior was not a time for weeping. He says that days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. And then it talks about cloth and garments and wineskins and uh, new wineskins and old wineskins and so forth. So we've previously dealt with parables in that limited way. Uh, this morning, though, we're getting it in a very major way. Seven parables throughout this passage, uh, the first one of which is very lengthy and even... A later one, uh, Tares Among the Wheat, that one's not exactly short. It's, uh, it's of some good length as well. Uh, so there are seven in this passage. Some would number an eighth one in there. I don't view the last one as a parable, but we'll talk about that as well when he ties things together. But at least seven or eight parables here in this text, depending on who you're reading. And it's a lengthy discourse. It's like Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's like the uh, Mount Olivet Discourse in 24 and 25. It is a significant feature in the gospel of the kingdom, in the gospel of Matthew. So let's keep that in mind because these parables are about the kingdom. And uh, hopefully we'll be solid on that. Now, parabolic teaching. What's parabolic teaching? What is a parable? Parable is not even a translation. It's a transliteration. The Greek is parabole. Parabole. P-A-R-A-B-O-L-E. E, parabole. And so parable is not a translation, it's a transliteration. But if you think of balo, meaning to throw, and para, alongside, you're throwing th two things down there alongside one another as a comparison. And by looking at them side by side, you're either comparing or you're contrasting or you're using a, a simile, you're using a metaphor. Somehow, by casting them alongside, it's a, it's a rhetorical device by which to examine the logic of a matter. A parabole is a narrative or saying of varying length. Some can be quite short. Uh, designed to illustrate a truth, especially through comparison or simile. And so, as a translation, you can render it comparison, illustration, parable, proverb, or maxim. Now, there is another term for proverb besides parabole, but it is still recognized that parabole can be rendered as a proverb. And some of them, especially the proverb form of a parable, becomes very short. 
And uh, we'll look at a handful of them from both the Old Testament and the New Testament this morning. It's a great way if you're teaching something and you want to uh, you want to preserve some sense of objectivity in the matter. So you don't use your audience as the example or you don't preach at them or you don't yell at them. You just tell a story. Once upon a time, see, like Nathan with David in, in uh, 2 Samuel 12, you know, he says, there once was a man. And he describes this traveling. He describes the slaying of the sheep, the poor man's sheep. And, and by using that parable, Nathan used a parable there. By using that parable, the message got communicated loud and clear. And David was so filled with anger and wrath over the, the audacity of that man who had all those flocks and all those herds and still killed that, that poor man's little, little lamb that he was outraged and said, that man needs to die. And, and the effectiveness of that parable was far beyond what it would have been if the prophet Nathan, Nathan would have just shown up and said, uh, thus says the Lord, you're an adulterer, you're a murderer, and, and we caught you. <laughs> you know, you're guilty. Uh, he, he, by teaching with a parable, David pronounced his own guilt, came to understand the message uh, itself. So it's, it's a well-known method, not only biblically speaking, but throughout the ancient world. The parable was well known and appreciated by Aristotle. I know you've all read Aristotle on rhetoric and in, he wrote multiple volumes on rhetoric and all the processes of logic and debate and thought and uh, aspects of grammar and style. And, and uh, truly, the ancient world, whether you're talking about Greece or Rome and so forth, they were light years beyond anything today in terms of uh, rhetoric. Our politicians today don't even listen to one another. They stand up to make speeches, but they're basically filming a campaign ad while they're doing it. They want to be a, a, an audio bite or a sound clip or something. They're not there to try to argue and convince and, and shape a thought or somehow influence any kind of thing in terms of debate. The ancient world, though, was uh, entirely different in that respect. So if you did want to read in uh, volume two there of Aristotle's rhetoric, uh, section 20, paragraphs 2 and following, taking you through the end. is a very lengthy section, but very worthwhile to, uh, to describe that. Now, the Septuagint translates mashal, the Hebrew mashal. Parabole is throughout the Old Testament as far as the Septuagint is concerned. And it translates mashal with parabole, 28 out of its 33 occurrences. So that's what, uh, another word that we're going to focus on is the Hebrew mashal, M-A-S-H-A-L, mashal, number 4911. Remember, the Septuagint is, the, is a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek. And it's actually it's unique. It's the first time in the ancient world that a, that a manuscript or a document of any sort of that length was translated into an entirely different language. And when the, the, the 22 or 24, however you number it, Hebrew books were then put into Greek, it was an extraordinary work of some 70 Jewish scribes. That's why it's called the Septuagint, based on the 70 Jewish scribes that worked on it in, uh, in Alexandria. So uh, it, it's a useful tool. We can use the Septuagint for comparative word studies and we can observe differences. For example, uh, a New Testament author, if he's quoting the Old Testament, he has the option of either quoting it directly from the Hebrew and, and writing the Greek himself or because the New Testament's written in Greek or he can find that it's already been translated for him and he actually quotes the Septuagint. A lot of the New Testament authors aren't quoting the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. They're quoting the Greek text of the Septuagint when they when they quote the Old Testament and the New Testament, and that becomes a, an interesting uh, language study of its own. So there are 33 times that mashal is used. 28 of those 33 times, uh, the Septuagint uses parabole as the rendering for mashal. Now, mashal has a wide spectrum of uses too, just like parabole does. Mashal can represent proverbs, and it usually does. Uh, mashal can speak of uh, maxims, similes, allegories, fables, comparisons, riddles. We've got riddles in the Bible. Uh, and they're called uh, as a mashal or mashalim in the plural. We have uh, taunts in Isaiah 14 where Isaiah says, take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. All right. We'll talk about that here in a moment. Uh, and then just simply could be rendered as a story. That is a story that embodies some truth. So it does have a wide range of meaning, just like parabole has. 
In fact, the opening to the book of Proverbs, these are the uh, Proverbs of Solomon, the Mishle Shalomo, the Proverbs of Solomon. Comes, uh, the Mishle come, is the plural construct form that comes from Mashal. Well, let's get a, just a quick sample here. We Obviously, there's 33 we could look at, but there's uh, half a dozen that I listed on the, on the screen. Starting in Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 37. Because see, the Lord didn't just, Jesus didn't just come along in the first century and start using parables as if that's something that had never been done before. It had been done occasionally. It was not a primary method. We already, and we talked about Nathan already this morning when he rebuked David. There was an illustration, but there were a handful of others, maybe a dozen or so throughout the Old Testament history. So it wasn't brand new, unique, something they've never seen before. However, the complete way that Jesus did use parables is unique, that he used them thoroughly. He used them repeatedly. He would, from this point to the cross, he would use them very extensively because he's communicating truth to positive volition and withholding um, truth from the negative volition, those that don't care to hear it anyway. And we'll talk about that also. Why is he speaking in parables? Why is it that certain people are entitled to this message and certain people are not? Is that, is that because of their worthiness? Is it because of... Well, we'll talk about that. And, and probably entitled is the wrong word, so I'll, uh, I'll uh, amend that statement here shortly. Deuteronomy 28. And in verse 37, you're all there by now, I'm sure. The um, This is... Uh, <laughs> Remember in Deuteronomy, they were promised blessings if they obeyed and then discipline if they disobeyed. didn't change the unconditional nature of the, of the uh, Abrahamic covenant, but it did illustrate the very conditional requirements attached to the Mosaic covenant. And so uh, this anger and this judgment that comes upon them, Verse uh, 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. Remember in their captivity that uh, there they were living in a land of idols. And Daniel and his friends had to face that. They all had to face that. You shall become a horror, a proverb and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. And so... Here, uh, the proverb is the mashal, and then taunt is a, uh, is a related term. But that they would, in fact, become a proverb. That can be, that typically, that's not a good thing. If you become a proverb, unless, unless you're a, a godly proverb, I guess it's possible. But sad to say, most proverbs that people become are in a negative sense. They're in a negative sense. Only rarely do people become a proverb in a, uh, in a positive way. All right, 1 Samuel 24. The one good one I can think of is um, John Gill in the 18th century. Great pastor. Baptist pastor in the 18th century in England. And um, he was so noted for his scholarship. He taught himself six languages by the time he was in, uh, 12 years old and he picked up another half dozen languages as an adult. And, uh, amazing character. But his study became proverbial to the point where it was, it was accepted in English courtrooms that something was just as true. If you're testifying to something's veracity, you would say it is just as true as Dr. Gill is in his study. And... You know, that was accepted as a, as a testimony of, of, of veracity in a courtroom. So, you know, at that point, John Gill became a proverb and became a very good proverb. All right, First Samuel 24. And um, here, um, verse 12, May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. What a testimony. Let, just let the Lord deal with it. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? Is, now, is David a dog? Is he a flea? No, but he's using a parable. He's using a metaphor. 
He's, he's speaking parabolically of himself in a very humble fashion. And he says, so therefore the Lord judge between uh, you and me and so forth. And, and then uh, Saul, because of the proverb, the effectiveness of proverbial communication has uh, some earthly remorse here in this particular chapter. They don't restore fellowship, but at least there's a bit of remorse here on on Saul's part. All right, Ezekiel 17. There's a couple of these, three of these now in Ezekiel. Ezekiel was big on uh, parables. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Daniel, you've gone too far. Ezekiel 17. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of Man. Remember, that's typically a title in the Gospels. That's, that's for Jesus Christ. But much of Ezekiel's ministry was under the title Son of Man. And uh, the type of Christ picture that Ezekiel uh, paints is uh, rather interesting in that, in that regard. Son of Man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings, long pinions, and a full plumage of many colors came to Lebanon and took away the top of the cedar. He plucked off the topmost of his young twigs and brought it to the land of merchants. He set it in a city of traders. He also took some of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow. Then it sprouted and became a low spreading vine with its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and yielded shoots and set out branches. But there was another great eagle. All right. Anyway, this is a parable. And if you want to learn what it means, you'll have to get those eagle notes. All right, we taught that some time back. Um, still in Ezekiel, over in chapter 21 and verse 5. See, I'm leaving you hanging, aren't I? You say, well, what happens next? What was that other great eagle? What was that all about? Come on, don't just leave us like that. It is a feature of the parable in that it's telling a story and it captivates the listener and the listener is drawn into it. And underneath this story is truth, the spiritual truth. Chapter 21, the, um, oh, in verse 5, and here's a parable, parable of the sword. Verse 3, behold, I am against you, and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off and uh, from you the righteous and the wicked. Now, does God really have a sword? Does he have a sheath? No, God is spirit, right? He doesn't have physical hands. This is a, this is a metaphor. This is anthropomorphisms here that are at work that are describing it. And uh, this is what he's going to do. Then I will cut off from you the righteous and the wicked. Therefore, uh, my sword will go forth from its sheath against all flesh from south to north. Thus, all flesh will know that I, Yahweh, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. It will not return to its sheath again. In other words, if it's drawn, then it's, it's going to do business. See, that's the mental attitude. And that was the mental attitude in law enforcement. If you draw your weapon... You, that means you intend to use it. There's no basis for drawing your weapon and not using it. That when you are drawing your weapon, you are already of the mindset that, that, that lethal force is not only authorized, but it will be used and it will be effective to save your life or whatever else uh, is going on. All right, chapter 24 and verse 3. Verse 2 says, Son of man, write the name of this day, this very day. The king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. See, they didn't have Fox News with a live satellite feed. And so when the, when the siege began, people back in Babylon didn't know until messengers would carry, you know, it would take days or weeks to get word back that, oh, by the way, on this day, and the reports would come back in the ninth year, the tenth month, on the tenth of the month. And by the time a courier got there with that information saying we, uh, they refused to surrender, the siege began on this day, the people of Babylon would go, wow. Ezekiel told us that three weeks ago on the very day. See, well, better than Fox News uh, satellite feeds. God uh, ministered through his prophets. And it was great because there was Jeremiah live on the scene, correspondent in Jerusalem. And then there was Ezekiel uh, there in Babylon. And they had the whole thing covered. So speak a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, thus says the Lord, or thus says the Lord God, put on the pot. 
uh, put it on and also pour water in it, put in the pieces, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, fill it with choice bones, take the choicest of the flock, also pile wood under the pot, make it boil vigorously, and also see the bones in it. You're going you're gonna to teach with Bible, you're gonna, uh, it's Bible class with cooking. It's going to be a, a kitchen message here. And um, verse 6, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city! to the pot in which there is rust and whose rust has not gone out of it, take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. You know, no matter what the choice meat is, it could be the most tender cut of lamb you've ever had in your life, but you're cooking it in a rusty pot. How's that going to taste? Okay. Anyway, there's a parable there. Uh, 24.3, that's where we are. Over in Isaiah. Isaiah is where it's called a taunt. And it is, in fact, a taunt, but it's a taunt through parable, so it's largely um, metaphoric. I'm going the wrong way. Isaiah 14. It will be in that day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, how uh, how fury has ceased. And it goes on to describe using language like uh, cypress trees and and, uh, um, and other things there. And then it talks about how you have fallen from heaven in verse 12, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. This uh, is, a, is an angelic conflict passage that looks at Satan and his five-eye wills and his fall. But it comes in a proverb or it comes in a mashal parable form of teaching. It comes in a parable form of of teaching. So that's what we deal with when we get to the Gospels. We get everything that the Old Testament prophets ever dreamed of in their use of parables, and now we get it multiplied in some uh, very unique ways. Because just as Israel had the same reason for, the Old Testament prophets had reason for speaking in parables, now Jesus has even more reason for speaking in parables because this is here a point where the kingdom is being rejected and where uh, truth must go out to those who have an ear. It says, he that has an ear, let him hear what the, what the Holy Spirit says. And, and so the, the, the need for parables intensifies in uh, the ministry of our Lord. And we'll talk about that as well in our main point too. So we, we describe for you what a parable is. A narrative or saying of varying length designed to illustrate a truth. And we don't want to take it beyond that. Uh, it, is, it is a story that teaches a truth. Now, people get weird with parables because let's say a parable has eight or ten details to it. Uh, and then they want to, to, to pin specific teaching to every little element of that. You can't do that. That, that defies the nature of a parable. See, the parable of the prodigal son, for example, the, the younger son, he goes out and he raises Cain and he comes back repentant. There is a story, there is a principle to be taught there, and it's the principle of grace forgiveness. And, but to try to go beyond that and, and assign different uh, allegorical meanings for the pig slop and for the harlots and for the land that he lived in, all this other stuff, you, what you're doing is you're taking it way too far. You're, you're twisting beyond the point of what a parable is designed to do. All right. It'd be like uh, trying to develop a systematic theology based upon the uh, uh, the boy who cried wolf. Right. The boy who cried wolf is a parable and it's designed to teach one thing. Right. What's it designed to teach? Don't call for help. Yeah. If you don't really need it. Right. Just to draw attention to yourself, because the day will come that you really do need help and you cry for help and people blow you off and say, oh, well, that's just so and so seeking attention. Okay, but that's that's a simple point to be made and it takes a little bit of a story to tell it and it makes sense. And that's what a parable does. So we want to be cautious that we don't go to go beyond what a parable does and try to force into doing something that it doesn't do. And there's the Old Testament background for New Testament parables in their point B. All right. Point C, then. This is also the second time that excessive crowds have prompted him to deliver a boat to shore message. Um, I don't know how significant that is, but it's just I've observed it twice now, and who knows how many times he had to do that. 
you know, when you have that many crowds and it's that packed out and they're trying to get close to him, it just, I figure the, the disciples were fishermen and they figured it out. This was their bright idea to get some distance between him and the crowds and they put him in a boat. He set five feet, ten feet offshore and he preached to them on the shore. We saw it in Galilee ministry number four, where the four become fishers of men, back in Luke chapter five and verse three. This is now the second time. The second time. We're still in a phase where crowds are assembling. His audiences continue to get larger and they, that will come to a tipping point. And then they'll peel away like rats off a sinking ship. But and, and, and that turning point will be obvious. But I want to highlight for you this morning that we've already actually passed a turning point. We passed a turning point when the in chapter 12. We passed a turning point when the accusers started uh, assigning Beelzebub and, and other demonic powers to the Lord's ministry. That this became the, the indication of the actual rejection of the Christ on his terms. See, they still were flocking to him in numbers, trying to make him king. When he feeds the 5,000, this great groundswell tries to make him king. And that's still yet future. So I'm, I'm hoping that by the time we wrap up this chapter, we're going to see really two tipping points. And the, the one with the numbers, that's the second one, really. And it follows the first tipping point, which is the Lord's recognition that the kingdom is being rejected where he starts to speak in parables, where he starts to speak to the, the redeemed, those on positive volition, those that have ears to hear. And he's no longer saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's now preparing his disciples for the crucifixion, for the cross, and for the, the, the things that are going to start happening here very quickly. So that tipping point comes earlier. That tipping point comes before the numbers drop off. And, uh, and, and I think that's vital. Because if we're gauging everything based on numbers, we're missing the spiritual point. And, and, and this church will be sick and in trouble long before the physical numbers die away. If that day ever comes. See, And it may be that this church can get sick and in spiritual trouble, trouble and the physical numbers will, will explode through the roof. Because those kind of ministries do. Typically. Alright. So this is the second time he's given a boat message third uh fourthly point d here's another here is a first it's not the first parable and it's not the first boat message however th here's a first this is the first time he has revealed the kingdom of, of god for the first time in mystery we have musterion in verse 11 so point d he reveals the kingdom for the first time in mystery in mystery Verse 11, Jesus answered them to you. It has been granted to know the mysteries, plural, of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been granted. And we've had a lot to say about kingdom in previous classes. And we'll say more in this class. We'll say more in upcoming classes. Because kingdom is a dominant theme. It was a dominant theme for, for John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is in hand. And then Jesus Christ comes and, and the kingdom is announced. And then even Jesus himself was proclaiming the kingdom. The disciples were baptizing and proclaiming the kingdom. The kingdom is what's, what they're oriented to throughout the Gospels, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Even the, the so-called Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything's focused on kingdom. Even after the, the resurrection, before the ascension, we were reading the disciples here in Acts chapter 1, and they finally are just, you know, okay, Lord, boy, you got us through that resurrection, that death and resurrection thing. Okay, is it now, is now the time that you're restoring the kingdom? <laughs> and he says, it is not for you to know the times or epochs. All right, they're still wrapped up in kingdom. So we got to get our handle around kingdom. So we understand what it is. Do we proclaim the kingdom in the church age? Do we proclaim the kingdom? Yes and no. <laughs> we do, but the kingdom is not here. And we're not trying to make this the kingdom. The kingdom is not on this earth yet. The kingdom's in heaven because that's where the king is. And until the king returns, the kingdom will never be on this earth because until the king returns, this world, the whole world, lies in the power of the evil one. And sadly, sadly, believers, even dispensational believers, 
forget that. And they try to spend their time trying to whitewash the devil's world. How McGee called it. It's just whitewash. They paint it, it looks all pretty until the first rain. He says, we're just whitewashing the devil's world. What are we really doing? We can't transform it. It must be destroyed, and it will be destroyed when Jesus Christ returns. So we do have a kingdom message. The kingdom is, the, the gospel of the kingdom continues to be preached throughout the book of Acts, long after Pentecost, throughout the, into the church age. And we do, when you give the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's just that it is the mystery state of the kingdom, and that's what I'm going to describe for you this morning. The mystery state of the kingdom as it relates to us presently in the dispensation of the church. That will come across this morning and next week and the week after and however long it takes us to, uh, to teach this chapter. So this is the first time. This is in mystery. He reveals the kingdom for the first time in mystery. Matthew 13, 11. Now what do we deal with when we talk about mystery? It's not a whodunit. It's not a, it's not a, a puzzle that you have to do some detective work and figure out the answers. Mystery is something that God withholds and then God unfolds to particular people at a particular time. That's what's happening here. This, the, this teaching on the kingdom is being withheld from the Pharisees. It's given in parable form so that the disciples can glean the truth because they have the spiritual insight to do so, but it's being withheld from the Pharisees. Likewise, the whole content of the New Testament is mystery until it's revealed in the New Testament. The apostles, these very same disciples here that are receiving the mystery of the kingdom, they will in the church age receive the mystery doctrine of the New Testament scriptures. And so we have this use of mystery. If you notice, verse 16, Blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The apostles of the Lamb are receiving what Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all those Old Testament prophets were, were craving to see. How is this kingdom going to come in? They saw the kingdom. They saw a lion laying down with the lamb. They saw righteousness. They saw peace on earth. They saw Jerusalem, the head of the nations. They saw it happen, but they didn't see with the clarity that these apostles are going to see precisely how that comes about. They had more questions than answers because they had a suffering Messiah as well. They had a lamb that was slaughtered, and they said, how does that fit? How do we have a suffering Messiah and a conquering Messiah? And the, and the prophets of old were stumped by that. And now Jesus Christ is telling his apostles that they are going to be very blessed to see these things. Join me in 1 Peter 1 and then Ephesians 3, I think will tie it together for us. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries. They weren't sloppy. And, and as we read it in Matthew 13, they were, they were regenerate individuals. They were godly prophets. They just couldn't hear because it, it was not designed for them to hear. They made careful searches and inquiries, inquiries meaning asking the Lord. They had the privilege to go to the throne of grace and ask. They could inquire of the Lord and get verbal answers back. Careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. See, that, that was a huge disconnect for them. Sufferings, glories, sufferings, glories. How does this work? And so they didn't know. Was it a person issue? Is there a suffering person and a reigning person? In other words, do we look for two messiahs? Are there two messiah? Or... Is it one Mashiach who comes two different times? They wanted to know what person or time. Now, we can answer it for them today, can't we? It's one person who came two times or is coming two times. But before that, they didn't know. Is it two different persons, two different Messiahs coming? There's going to be a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah. Is that two different people? Conceivably, from everything they knew, that was, that was a legitimate hypothetical. Until he came and suffered and died and went back to his father and promised to come again. 
Now, in the church age, we know that there's only one Messiah. And when he comes back, he's coming back for the second and final time. And uh, he suffered the first time, and he reigns the second time. So it's, it, but as, they didn't know that. That was a mystery. That was withheld. But it was given to the apostles to reveal that. So seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. That, that everything they did, their life and ministry was groundwork for, uh, for believers yet to come. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. The aspect of mystery doctrine is not just from human prophets. Even in the angelic realm, the things that God withheld were unknown to even the angels. And there's reasons for that also as the angelic conflict goes on. God doesn't tip his hand to the adversary and to the fallen forces. All right, over in Ephesians then, chapter 3, we've got the really the main text that describes the nature of mystery doctrine and how it's the apostles and New Testament prophets that were the servants selected to receive mystery doctrine in a mystery age. Remember, our dispensation is a mystery. The whole dispensation is. And so the teaching that goes to that, to our, to our age, to us, is also mystery. That makes sense. It'd be real hard to keep this age a mystery if there was a whole book of the Bible dedicated to teaching about it ahead of time, right? <laughs> so, yeah, there was nothing in the Old Testament that, that taught or prepared believers for the age in which we live. Because the age itself was mystery. Ephesians 3, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation, doesn't come through Bible study, it comes directly by revelation from God, because it's not in the Bible. By revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, but referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So this mystery doctrine had to wait until the dispensation of the church, until the Holy Spirit was outpoured upon members of the church, and to where gifted apostles and gifted church-age prophets could then receive the uh, mystery doctrine to record in the New Testament to describe the things that apply to us in our age of grace. So which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And it goes on. And it goes on down here how Jews and Gentiles are now one body in Christ and, and, um, and these things. Uh, verse 9, to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. That's our age. That's the dispensation of the church. The word administration there. See that in verse 9? That's dispensation. We could call the, I, normally it's called the dispensation of the church because we, the church is the steward, but you could call it the dispensation of the mystery. And that's what Paul calls it there in verse 9 which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an eternal purpose. Before the foundation of the world, he knew that the church was going to be a part of that plan. It was going to be the keynote address to that plan. There were only certain things that God could teach the angels through the Gentiles. And there was only a little bit more that he could teach the angels through the Jews. But it's through the church uniquely that the fallen angels can be convicted with respect to grace. The grace that saves us, the grace that forgives us, the grace that we walk in. That's the resolution to the fall of Satan and the whole angelic conflict. When you, when you boil it all down, it comes back to grace. So when he introduces the kingdom here now as mystery, how many times have we had mystery up to this point? From the baptizer to the Lord, to the disciples, to the Pharisees, to everybody talking about kingdom this, kingdom this, kingdom this. Everything's wrapped up in kingdom, especially in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew's the gospel of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, was the constitution for the coming kingdom of God on earth. 
Everything's all kingdom. But now there is intense conflict in chapter 12 and they call him Beelzebub and they say, you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And the, the rejection of the Messiah at that point becomes the tipping point. And so the Lord gets in a boat, stands by the shore and starts proclaiming parables of the kingdom so that those who have ears to hear can hear and be prepared for the coming mystery state when the kingdom is no longer in the world, but now in glory. So we'll talk about that. It's a huge difference. Point E, and this will hopefully summarize everything we've done this morning. Due to the rejection of the Christ in his first advent, the kingdom of heaven emphasis is changed God's plan isn't changed. God's, no purpose of his can be thwarted. His plan from Alpha to Omega never, never uh, bobs and weaves and ducks to plan B. It's still plan A, always has been, always will be. But from the standpoint of the messengers that are communicating this message now, the emphasis is changed. The emphasis is changed. You can still proclaim the kingdom, and they do. They keep proclaiming the kingdom. And even in the church age, they proclaim the kingdom as they traveled about in the book of Acts. But the emphasis is not what it had been prior to this chapter right here. Prior to delivering the, the mystery parables of the kingdom. What do you think that, that difference in emphasis is? You'll notice it is no longer at hand. It is no longer at hand. In so many places, whether it was John the Baptist or whether it was Jesus or the disciples or other people, the message was that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is on the scene. It is here. It is ready to be inaugurated. And we find from this chapter onward that that's no longer the driving emphasis. Now you want to know what's at hand? The adversary is at hand. The cross is at hand. Behold, the one betraying me is at hand. There are other things at hand now as he approaches. In fact, it it becomes so at hand that he does not go to Jerusalem for the very next Passover. But he stays stays across the Sea of Galilee and uh, feeds the 5,000, has a huge ministry out there. He does not go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And he's one year away from the cross. So that at-hand message is, uh, is de-emphasized. And you'll notice a new emphasis comes into play with respect to the kingdom not being of this world. John eighteen thirty six. We find it's not a change of teaching. It is simply a shift in the emphasis. That's what I want to get across. Because it's still on the way. The kingdom of heaven will be on this earth. He made promises to David and those will be fulfilled. The Davidic king will sit on the throne. He will judge the nations. It's just not going to be in the first century. The the Messiah was crucified. He ascended. He would be seated in session. And uh, the mystery state would then be inaugurated rather than the earthly state of the kingdom. In John 18, he's testifying before Pilate. And uh, this is one of his trials. And um, Pilate entered again into the praetorium, he says in verse 33, and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. That's quite a bit different when you say from the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. See, that's kind of... Peter tried that last night. Grabbed a sword, chopped off an ear, and and uh, going to try to keep Jesus from getting arrested. My servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm or it's not from here. So that is a change in the emphasis. It doesn't change the doctrine. It doesn't change the teaching. 
The kingdom is still the kingdom, but the emphasis has now shifted. And it's shifted as a, as a consequence of the rejection of Jesus Christ. In other words, we recognize that the kingdom offered was a legitimate offer. And part of this we wrestle with because we don't, we're finite. It boggles the mind sometimes how even, even though God in his omniscience knew the kingdom would be rejected, God in his grace still presented a legitimate offer of the kingdom. And they rejected it and they crucified their king. Having rejected it, now the emphasis has shifted. See, and remember throughout any of this, Jesus isn't using his omniscience. Okay? He's, he's facing tests like you and I face tests. The disciples, Peter and those guys, they don't know this kingdom's getting rejected. Okay? Not from the standpoint of, of uh, any kind of omniscience as far as uh, the Lord is concerned. He's facing the same test that we're facing. So it is no longer at hand. It is now not of this world. Secondly, what happens? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is now limited on earth to a mystery state. The kingdom of heaven is now limited on earth to a mystery state until it is physically manifest at second advent. The kingdom of heaven is now limited on earth. It's not limited in heaven in any respect. You can't say it's limited. It's not limited in heaven. But it is limited on earth to a mystery state until it is physically manifest at second advent. I'm going to introduce you to this concept this morning and then we'll expand it next week. Mystery state. Think about kingdoms or nations or countries or whatever. And they have their normal state, but then something can happen on occasion where they lose their themselves. They lose their sovereignty. They lose, um, you know, think about uh, uh, Austria in World War II or Czechoslovakia. You know, when the Nazis rolled through, was there still a Czechoslovakia after that? But who was running it? Germany. It was what we call a puppet state. All throughout the Cold War, Bulgaria, Romania, Poland, East Germany, they had their own governments, but they were puppet states. And if they got, if they got out of line, the Soviets would replace them, crush the rebellion, put a new puppet in there. They were puppet states. So we have that phrase, puppet state. There are other states um, a, a kingdom or a nation can be in a state of emergency. And in a state of emergency, certain things are different. Certain constitutional provisions are, are waived and certain other things take place in a state of emergency or in a state of war or in a state of natural disaster. There's different states. A kingdom can have different states, in which case it's not operating as it would normally. Does that make sense? See, what I'm trying to teach is now the kingdom of heaven is in a different state than it would have been otherwise. And it's clearly in a different state than it will be in the millennium. We're not yet in the millennium. We're not yet. And, and, and people that are trying to make the kingdom now on earth are missing that. Because they're failing to identify the state in which the kingdom presently is. It is now in a mystery state. And that's not my term, that's the Bible term for it, when Jesus starts proclaiming these mysteries of the kingdom in a mystery state until it is physically manifested, second advent. We're going to use this term, kingdom of heaven, mystery state. This is going to become a, it's going to become a, a doctrinal title for this concept. And I, I really want to, to, uh, to focus on that. Because it's going to bless us in studying the fact that we're talking about in between rejection and acceptance. Rejection and acceptance. Can I draw this out? The rejection of the Christ, the acceptance of the Christ. And one of the hardest things I think we can do, because we are a dispensational assembly, is for the moment we want to kind of disconnect that, that thinking of, of dispensations and ages. All right. I want you to, to consider 
there is in the timeline, we can draw linearly, linearly in terms of time, okay? And there's some amazing things that are different. Now, we, uh, when we break it down, eternity past, eternity future, I'll, there is an angelic realm, but I'll ignore that. Just the basic four that I learned in vacation Bible school as a kid, Gentiles, Jews, church, right? Kingdom or Christ or millennium. You all learned that? The four basic dispensations? Okay. That's a very simple form. You can outline it into seven or eight or nine or more things. But now, stop to consider some things. The, the, the dispensation of Israel is not yet over. It has a final week to, to play. That's called the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. It's not yet complete. That the church, rather than drawing lines, what we ought to draw are parentheses because the dispensation of the Jews is not yet complete. It has another week to go, minimum. Okay. Now, when we talk about different time frames, there is a significant event politically. There is a significant event that happened in 586 B.C. What happened in 586 B.C.? Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. The glory of God departed from the temple. It's never been returned. Not as a Shekinah glory. It returned when at the age of 12, Jesus Christ walked in there and started asking questions. But in 586 B.C., something happened there. And I'll, I'll tell you what else happened there. The Davidic throne was emptied. There has not been a Davidic heir seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem since 586 B.C. Even when they went back under Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, they went back. Zerubbabel was a governor, not a king. Zerubbabel was a Persian governor under Cyrus. He was not a Davidic king on a Davidic throne. There has not been a Davidic king on a Davidic throne since Jeconiah. All right. Now, I want you to realize that because the, this seat remains unoccupied until second advent the second advent david uh, jesus christ the greater son of david will take his seat and that will then once again the davidic throne will will proceed all right but i want you to recognize that as we draw that that this event here from 586 bc to this event here we don't know when but it can't be this year. We've got at least seven years of tribulation coming up. So even if rapture is today and tribulation starts tomorrow, this, this won't be until 2014 minimum. Okay. Um, what I want you to recognize for the moment is that this, this uh, time frame here has nothing to do with the, stu with the spiritual stewardship of Gentiles, Jews, church, and kingdom. Because... Israel didn't lose their stewardship when the Davidic dynasty lost its throne. Does that make sense? Israel was still the steward in the Babylonian captivity, after the captivity, between the Testaments, during the Gospels. Israel is still the steward. They have their stewardship until Pentecost when the church is ushered in and now there's a new steward on the church that is, uh, earth that is the church. And when the church is raptured out, they have their stewardship back. Israel, once again, becomes the steward of God's uh, word, God's plan and program here on earth. So the concept of this throne is a separate matter from dispensations, from stewardship. Follow that? Cool. Now, let me do one more thing. If you can follow that, then you can follow this. The kingdom of heaven mystery state. And first of all, we've, got a, we, we've talked about kingdom of heaven. Is that a parallel for the kingdom of David? <laughs> no, that's right. It's much larger than the Davidic throne. Okay? The Davidic throne can be an element of it, but the kingdom of heaven is, is an eternal kingdom and the Davidic throne is an earthly kingdom. All right, but the kingdom of heaven, mystery state... You're going to see this over and over and over again. If you were paying attention in 2002, you saw it in your Through the Bible notebook. But we were going 1,000 miles an hour and didn't have a chance to teach it as thoroughly as we can teach it this morning and over the next several weeks. The kingdom of heaven mystery state, just like this throne issue, 
is detached from any kind of a dispensational framework. And this is where even dispensational guys get confused. Because they, they'll look right at you and say, this is the church in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven mystery parables are church age application in Matthew 13. But they fail to describe why then it's given to Israel during the time frame that the church is still a mystery. If Matthew 13 is for the church, how could it still be mystery? And it's still mystery. We know that. So we want to get across, just like the, the vacancy of the Davidic throne and the reseating of the Davidic throne, that's unrelated to the dispensational program of the ages. Likewise, the kingdom of heaven mystery state is unrelated. It is disconnected from dispensational considerations. Because why? When did it start? It started, the mystery state started right here in 33 AD when they rejected the Christ. And believe me, they rejected him before they crucified him. They rejected him a year and a half before they crucified him. And that's when he pronounced the mystery parables. They will accept him. And they will only accept him once they go through hell on earth. It takes tribulation. It takes the most utmost of intense divine discipline and wrath and judgment for Israel to look upon him who they pierced. For them to accept that Jesus Christ is king. And I know you heard that from uh, Randall Price over the last couple of weeks. All right. They will look upon him whom they pierced. And um, the scriptures that, that, that uh, talk about that. All right. So the kingdom of heaven is eternal. And it will be on earth. There. After second advent. But between, and it could have been on earth much sooner. Because remember, it was at hand. It was there, ready to be launched. The herald was there. The foreigner was there. The Christ was there. So it was at hand. But then rather than be physically manifest, it was entered into a mystery state. And that this mystery state stretches from the rejection to the acceptance. From the rejection to the acceptance. And so because of that, let me give this to you now under subpoint three. Because of that, here's the emphasis and how the emphasis has changed. It is no longer at hand. It is now not of this world. The kingdom of heaven is now limited on earth to a mystery state until it is physically manifest in second advent. And thirdly, the term kingdom of heaven mystery state. Get used to that. I'm going to abbreviate it K-O-H-M-S. Okay? Capital K, little O, capital H, kingdom of heaven, parentheses, M-S. Close parentheses. So K-O-H-M-S. Kingdom of heaven mystery state. References the time frame between Israel's rejection of Christ and ultimate acceptance of Christ. Notice Israel's acceptance of Christ. That's a national acceptance, which will only come about through tribulation. So, kingdom of heaven mystery state references the time frame between Israel's rejection of the Christ and ultimate acceptance of Christ. Now, when, once you grasp that, you'll recognize dispensationally, kingdom of heaven mystery state encompasses the dispensation of the church and the dispensation of Israel, age of tribulation. It covers both church age and tribulation. You see, that's why it spans the, the dispensations. That's why it's disconnected from any dispensational attachments. Because it actually crosses from... The, there's a change of stewardship while this mystery state is, is, is operating. So when we talk about kingdom of heaven mystery state... Versus, shall we call, kingdom of heaven realized. Kingdom of heaven manifest. 
Okay? But the kingdom of heaven mystery state references the time frame between Israel's rejection of Christ and ultimate acceptance of Christ. Dispensationally, kingdom of heaven mystery state encompasses the dispensation of the church, that's you and I, and the dispensation of Israel, age of tribulation. Age of tribulation. So, here is, well, we'll come back to it next week and we will teach these parables. They are parables of the kingdom, yes. But they're parables of the kingdom mystery state. And so there will be church age application, clearly. But there will be tribulation application as well. Even crossing into millennial application because the mystery state will unfold in the, in the manifest reality on the earth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Once the heavenly, uh, the mystery state is concluded and the uh, revealed state then is, uh, is inaugurated, the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, I know there's probably questions, but we are over time and uh, you can handle questions tonight or next week as we return to this subject. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the uh, privilege and blessing and opportunity to teach And uh, thank you for shielding us from troublemakers that uh, might otherwise come in here and disrupt your word. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.